This is Passing for Normal, conversations with authors, artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex, and GMO seeds you'll ever read. But mostly, it's about everyday courage and what it takes to get there in your own personal, even unconventional way. So join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Hello, and welcome to Passing for Normal. Today we're talking with Michael Stalker. Michael Stalker describes himself as a technical generalist by disposition, a bioacoustician by trade, and a musician by avocation. He is also a naturalist. He is the founding director of Ocean Conservation Research, a scientific research and policy development organization focused on understanding the impacts of and finding solutions to the growing problems of human-generated noise pollution. He is a public spokesperson on issues of ocean conservation, physics, communication, technology, and biology. His new book, Here Where We Are, Sound, Ecology, and Sense of Place, is a fascinating exploration of the nature of sound, sound perception, and how sound locates us to our place. A resident of West Marin, California, Michael is a soft-spoken, passionate advocate using his own sound to get others to listen and make change. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thank you, Sharon. I'm honored to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Um, can you start out by telling us a bit about your organization, Ocean Conservation Research, and the work that you do there? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I was uh, kind of brought into this particular field about 20 years ago, uh, being a musician and working in the music industry, I got pretty familiar with acoustics, uh, acoustical design, and kind of the physics of sound. And in 1992, uh, the Navy was proposing a program that would basically insonify the entire ocean so that they could communicate with submarines. And, oh, my um, God. <laughs> that's what I kind of said, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a pretty bad idea. Uh, I think that the issue at that time was these people who were proposing this were uh, physical oceanographers and they weren't biologists. So there's definitely a distinction between those particular mm -hmm. inquiries mm -hmm. and they didn't think that uh, that animals in the ocean necessarily were much more than just fixtures. And uh, so a number of us, including myself, uh, started really kind of looking at this long and hard and, and going to the public hearings and uh, what was really kind of alarming for me, though, was that that was just the kind of the camel's nose under the tent, that this I, was heralding the age of underwater communication, not in terms of just long wavelength, low-frequency sonar, but also mid-frequency and high-frequency sonar. So we were basically insonifying the ocean with all these sounds without regard to what their impacts uh, are on marine life. And as we've seen in the ensuing years that we've... Uh, uh, exacted some pretty deep damage on certain animals, uh, marine mammal strandings, whales, particularly beaked whales, um, the stranding coincident with uh, Navy exercises, and then we started seeing dolphins and other animals that were suffering as a result of, of military sonar, you know, communication sonar. So 
you know, it was just the beginning. I've been working on it since then and uh, trying to essentially alert uh, industry and military stakeholders about the potential impacts of various sounds that we're bringing into the ocean. Wow, it's amazing. It's a, I mean, just the scope of the scope of the the damage or the potential damage and the and the scope of the job that you've taken on is pretty astounding. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not. I mean, it's, I guess as a nonprofit organization, it's kind of a little bit abstract for most. Uh, although their whale and dolphin component is something that brings people into it. Uh, the larger discussion, the scientific and technical discussion, is is sometimes challenging for the lay public to really grasp. So, you know, one of the things that that uh, we attempt to do is give either through metaphor or storytelling, or now we're working with uh, an artist, Tice Mazur and uh, Susan Alexander, to put together a um, an experiential environment using art to convey complex ideas uh, in ways that convey understanding without necessarily conveying data. Yeah. So um so it's it's very complex. You know, we're talking about the ocean and we're talking about water, right? The element of water and the nature of what happens to sound in water and the life that lives in that and, and sound itself. Is it can you just walk us through a little bit about sound and the nature of sound and perhaps how it specifically moves through water. Yeah. Uh, well, sound really is what we perceive. Uh, and mm-hmm. the what we are perceiving is acoustical energy as it moves through a medium. And it moves through air, it moves through wood, it moves through... Essentially, sound is, is a product of some work being done conveying vibration or that work into that medium. And you know, we have sensors that are adapted to sense sound in air as a pressure gradient. Uh, we have these diaphragms called eardrums, and they convert that, again, back to mechanical energy, which we can hear uh, stimulating our nerves and our cochlea and what have you. Um, in water, it's a little, it's more complicated because uh, in terms of pressure, uh, as you get deeper into the ocean, the pressure increases pretty fast. So animals in the ocean most of them don't have any kind of pressure gradient sensing or it's not the most acute way of sensing their surroundings because they're limited to having to... If anybody's, you know, in the audience has been a diver, you know that every couple of feet down you have to equalize your ears and that's not very practical as an ongoing uh, uh, perceptual regime. So a lot mm-hmm. of animals in the ocean hear the kind of the vibration in terms of the movement, the molecular movement or particle motion movement in, in the water. And so... Uh, because it couples so well, uh, sound or vibration uh, in water can be conveyed pretty long distances and pretty efficiently. Pretty amazing adaptations that animals have uh, kind of evolved to uh, to hear that. I think probably of the most complex of them are the marine mammals that we uh, see and hear uh, in the water where they have essentially a hearing system that relies on this kind of fat lipids and um, you know structures within their their bodies and in their skulls and uh, some of them more you know one of the most complex uh, animal adaptations I you know I believe is in in the beluga whale where they not just not only just um, you know have biosonar they can um, 
essentially see their surroundings through sound reflections, but they also have an amazing vocal repertoire, and they can mm-hmm. modulate that. Recently, a couple of months ago, um, a story came up about a beluga whale who had uh, essentially, it was, these animals are social animals. It was actually a pretty sad story. Any of these captive animals, they shouldn't really be held in captivity. It's not such a good thing. But in this particular case, uh, the animal was used being used for research, and in order to reach out to its kind of trainers or those people, trainers is kind of a bad word, but it's, you know, captors, I'll just use that to be, be frank about mm-hmm. it, um, it, was basically communicating, modulating its voice down so it sounded like human voices in an underwater speaker. So here's an animal wow. that's mimicking a sound that's kind of at the lower end of its auditory uh, perceptual range, but it was it sounded like an underwater speaker. It was really startling. And, um, wow. And so it got their attention. Yeah. It got their attention, you know, and it was also, you know, the, the story that I read about it was basically some of the behaviors are talking about these animals, the community animals, and they just do anything they can to try to reach out and establish companionship with, those who are around them. And, of course, you know, the trainers or the um, the captors are, you know, feeding them and what have you. It, it has the illusion of a, of a amicable relationship. You know, you go to, um, you know, SeaWorld or, or any of these places where they have these kind of whale gels. These animals really don't have much of a choice, but it's, it speaks a lot of their consciousness that they're not attacking their captors. With rare occasion, of course, the blackfish story being one of them, but that animal was an animal that was captive at two years old, had not been entirely socialized by its by mm-hmm. its uh, family, so it, you know, it's not surprising that it had kind of violent outbursts, because it hadn't had, it hadn't been told that that was bad by its, by its, uh, its you know, grandmothers and aunties and, uh, in a matrilineal society, its elders. You're speaking to this already, but, so what role does, does sound play in the communication and the bonding of these ocean mammals? Well, you know, one of the things we're starting to find that's remarkable uh, about the way they phonate and what they do with that is, you know, for years and years, John Lilly kind of created uh, a lot of fame around trying to uh, establish communication uh, with these dolphins that he had, captive dolphins. And he was also looking for some form of language. And, you know, we typically, certainly we Westerners think of language as a, as a symbolic conveyance of, of ideas, that something mm-hmm. means something, and then we kind of trade and we have a commerce of those meanings. Uh, the dolphins don't necessarily have any reason to adapt it to that, particularly since they use biosonar in the sense that they'll kick a signal out the signal comes back and bounces back and then distorted, and the distortion is basically what is actually happening in front of them. It's, a, it's something uh-huh. that, you know, the, the fish or the, the kelp or whatever it is. that, they, And they have an incredibly acute ability to be able to synthesize their surroundings in very complex ways. So these animals are, you know, a, a harbor porpoise, for example, has been uh, observed dodging uh obstacles thinner than a human hair at, you know, essentially 25 miles an hour. It's swimming through this stuff. And, you know, it's or being able to distinguish the difference between healthy tissue and tumorous tissue or, you know, a woman who's pregnant, they'll oftentimes be able to sense through biosonics, kind of like sonograms. 
Uh, I've talked to people who work in these dolphin dolphinariums, and you know the, the the dolphins will treat a pregnant woman a lot differently than they'll treat the others who are swimming with these dolphins. And oftentimes, the women might not even know that they're pregnant, and the and, and the uh, uh, dolphin will have kind of alerted them, or, or the trainers say, "You better check this out." <laughs> so they have very acute, you know, ability to be able to, you know, you can't hide anything from a dolphin. So. So we've kind of started understanding that these animals are now basically communicating through, I mean, they eavesdrop in each other, that, you know, one of them will beam out to the fish and the other one will catch it. So there's not much of a reach from there to them being able to actually transmit images or, you know, strategic um, shapes or whatever to each other uh, as a communication Modality. And we know these animals hunt strategically. There's an interesting observation that happened a couple of years ago with orcas, what people call killer whales, that they worked out this routine and they managed to, they were um, the resident orcas up in the Puget Sound area, and they managed to do this whole hunting strategy without making any sound at all. So wow. somehow they planned it out. And so that's, we're starting to get into behavioral modalities which we can understand why there's adaptations for but we have not been able to observe them um recently also in the past couple of years we realized that dolphins have names they they are given names by their mothers uh, in before mm. and after birth those names are used they're just a signature whistle i call them signature whistles and what's interesting about these signature whistles is they use them in swimming in groups like saying Hi, this is you know, Bob's on your left. You know, trying to kind of warn each other, kind of keep tapping each other. Uh, but when they get into trouble, for example, when they're pulled up to, you know, the, the captive dolphins are pulled up to administer medicine or whatever, and they're kind of in trouble, they don't say their name. They say the name of their pal. So, you know, Grace gets pulled out of the water for a, a, a blood, you know, infusion or something like that, and, and she'll go, Bob, Bob, and Bob will mm-hmm. come So calling back to so, Bob. To help. Yeah. So now yeah. we have a first evidence of symbolic or representational sound that these animals are using with each other. And um, it's amazing so, it's, what we—it's it's amazing what we don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so then how? So then how does the noise pollution? Now, some of it you're saying, you know, was plan to be intentional, like the Navy, you know, uh, as you say, sonifying the ocean, or the sounds of boats, the sounds of ships. I mean, how how is this interfering with the animal's communication? Well, you know, this is really the challenge. The ocean is 10 times louder now than it was just 50 years ago, and it's largely wow. me- mechanized sound. Um, I'm just in the, I just submitted, but it was returned to me. I'm going to have to kind of revamp it. There's some peer review paper that I've, I've written on the how loud the ocean was back before industrial whaling. And it turns out, if the models are anything to be believed, that, uh, you know, before all the extirpation of all the whales, the, the ocean was really loud. But it was all whale songs, fish noises, sounds mm. of, you know, biotic, you know, biological sounds. And, and, what happens in those cases is animals will choose what they call acoustical niches. They'll choose a frequency range or they'll choose a time range or some kind of a uh, perceptual filtering that will allow them to communicate in, you know, a, a, have a huge, dense sound environment like, a, like you might find in a forest, uh, you know, in the morning or in the evenings. 
but because they're all specifically focused on their acoustical niche, they can communicate through that. The challenge we have with the mechanized sounds, whether it's shipping sounds or the sound of underwater mining and extraction industries, the sound of oil and gas processing and what have you, is there these very loud broadband masking noises. So it's kind of like, um, you know, trying to have a conversation next to an air conditioner that's running. You know, it's it's broadband, hissing, car running or what have you. It, It covers or masks the frequency range of our particular interest, the interest of, you know, where our vocal frequencies are. And so it it makes it more difficult to communicate. And, of course, as we're bringing or introducing more mechanical sounds into the ocean, it's masking significant biological sounds as well. Right. So just can you briefly say, like, what is the difference between a natural sound or a mechanical sound or electronic sound? Well, this is one of the things that we're really trying to work out because, you know, you could also say that crashing waves is a broadband sound as well. Fish manage to survive in that, you know, coastal fish. Uh, It's a noisy environment. So um, what's the difference between that and a mechanical sound? Those are some of the things we have to try to trying to make the distinction between uh, broadband natural sounds like waves crashing or wind or lightning strikes or rain that may be disruptive to animals but don't seem to be, these animals are living in this natural environment, and a mechanistic sound. And, you know, in some cases we don't really see evidence of masking as we would expect. Animals, you know, who are using low-frequency sound to navigate across long distances are not getting lost doing that, you know, now that there's all this mm-hmm. mechanistic sound. But what we are seeing is we're seeing uh, indications of stress where the sounds mm-hmm. are, un, you know, they're un, abnormal to these animals. It's kind of like a freeway versus a uh, waterfall. You know, they could mm-hmm. sound the same at a distance. You know, I'm outside in San Rafael right now. I can hear the freeway. If I use my imagination or uh, or didn't, I could maybe pretend it was a waterfall happening or something. But it's really not exactly the same. So we see stress in uh, – there was a study by Susan Parks and uh, Ross and Rowland uh, looking at cortisol levels of northern Atlantic right whales up in the Bay of Fundy. And it was just a coincidence that they were both working on these same animals, not on the same project, but uh, uh, Rosalind was – essentially measuring the stress level through uh, cortisol, kind of serum blood levels. And uh, Susan was recording the sounds of them. And when the 9-11 uh, disaster happened, all the shipping in the ocean was stopped for about four days. He just said, you know, we're just going to stop everything. Mm-hmm. Airplanes stopped. The, the, you know, the ocean and the skies, you know, the habitat became quiet. And they saw an immediate drop in cortisol levels, which is a proxy for stress. So this, and that was up in the Bay of Fundy, which isn't a particularly loud area. I mean, these animals are also <laughs> right. in Boston Harbor and along the eastern seaboard. So we, we know quite clearly that unnatural sounds, the sounds of shipping, that while it may sound to us like, you know, waves crashing in the distance or something like that, is actually stressful for these animals. And, yes. um, so the humans so are not the only ones who are stressed. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, like we all creatures. have that. 
Yeah, we get stressed out in, in city, or, you know, in urban no, I mean, social violence too. I'm just saying that the, you know that that uh, so many uh, illnesses and diseases and conditions really boil down to stress in humans, and, yeah. and it's, it's the truth for other animals as well. I would say so, you know, although, yeah. again, because our, you know, our ability to observe these animals in, in close detail is kind of in, is, is difficult because we, you know, most whales, if we're lucky, we, you know, we're really watching them. We'll see them for about 2% of their life when their head's above, when they're, when they're breathing. They go right. sounding <laughs> again. You know, so we, we have very little to gauge in terms of what's normal for these animals. And, and in terms of, you know, doing any kind of, uh, you know, systematic study of their of their illnesses. You know, we don't we have very little to work with here. We don't know what a, what a sick whale is until it's dead. We have it, it's blunt. Right. We have very blunt right. observational uh, tools. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm going to switch the conversation a little bit to talking about you. And so, you know, you have brought all these different expertise and areas of your own interest, acoustics and music and nature and your passion for advocacy and activism. Why? What what compels you? Why do you do this? How do you do this? What compels you to do this? I know that it's not easy work that you do. Yeah, you know, there's sometimes I kind of think it might have been easier if I was just an MBA working for a bank somewhere, pushing numbers around and trying to make more of them appear at the bottom of my personal bottom line. But uh, yes. it's something that I wasn't, I wasn't predisposed to that. And, and you know, no, I knowing, can't see you doing that, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the world we live in is an incredible gift. It's so beautiful. And when I was a child, you know, it was much my mom would say, all right, out of the house, you know. And so that was how she got us out of her hair and also got us out of the nature. You know, we're in the backyard. It wasn't, you know, it was a suburban backyard, but there was enough nature out there to to keep us, you know, amused. We were in the grass and in the trees and things. And that became really, in a sense, uh, you know, my baseline of what's normal is, is being in a natural environment. And I, and I love it. It's so informative. It's so engaging. It's so... You know, endless curiosity can be uh, can can be fed in uh, you know in a stream, and uh, things, of course, uh, unfortunately, have changed a lot. You know, when I was a child, you could go to almost any stream in California and drink it. Uh, nowadays, you can probably drink about three percent of the water you find in streams because of various types of pollutants that are in it. And also, when I was a child, you could kind of lift up rocks and find, uh, you know, sticklebacks hiding under them, and you can see polywalk. There's a lot more life in the streams. We've really stressed a lot of that out, so there's not a lot of healthy streams in California that um, that are, you know, home to that kind of life anymore. So that, in a sense, I'm watching that, that degradation of habitat and environment has been a a concern of mine, and I, you know, I, the gift of life, the gift of the planet, this, uh, this unbelievable generosity of spirit that we're allowed, um, you know, we're not really honoring it, and I uh, somehow feel compelled. It's, it's like I can't not do it. It's, it's something that, um, you know, I, I Malcolm Margolin, who's a, a publisher of Haiti Press, is really uh forward looking guy who's really gonna gone out on a limb and and produced or published books that wouldn't necessarily see the light of day on, on Harper, but he wrote a really simple piece about beauty 
and you know supporting the blossoming of beauty how could you not do that you know how mm-hmm. could you given the opportunity to just put a little more uh beauty in your life how could you be humdrum you know and so mm-hmm. it's maybe it's essentialism you know and i know that that uh you know you as well this you know the sensuality of our engagement drives many of our decisions and um so that's, I guess, part of it. I don't know, you know, if those people who are pushing the numbers down to the bottom line are lacking that sensuality on the one side, but they, they may have different priorities in terms of how, how they, uh, you know, engage in it in their surroundings. That's beautiful. So, uh, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> on behalf of beauty, and like you said, you know, given this gift, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you help preserve it? Why wouldn't you further it? Why wouldn't you help it thrive, right? Beauty itself in all forms. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So can you tell... Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I just just was going to say it was hard to understand is, you know, that people always have different filters and different framing. So I can't really, aside from my own perception, attest to how people... You know, engage, but I do know. You know, one of the challenges we have in the environmental uh, conservation movement is that people tend to identify with what we call charismatic animals: dolphins, and whales, and panda bears, and lions, and cheetahs, and um, and that while it's it's important, all these animals are super important to have the system within which they live, which you know we're all connected to, is what. You know, I guess systematic thinking leads me to to try to uh, encourage the you know healthful engagement. You know, this, I was talking to somebody yesterday. He's going to try to uh, get us conversing uh, to with Jerry Brown, who uh, our governor in California, who seems to be uh, not necessarily down on, on, on fracking. This is kind of hydraulic fracturing, which is poisoning water so that we can get oil and gas. And, you know, his reason behind is a very Jerry Brown reason is, well, there's bigger fish to try, you know, in terms of what our concerns are, so this is not one of it. But, you know, my response to that is there is only one body of water, and we're it. And to just the idea of poisoning any of it for any reason at all is just completely foolhardy. So, Michael, can you tell us where our listeners can contact you to find out more about what you do and how they, too, can help save the seas? Yeah, uh, thank you for this opportunity. We have a, a bunch of different websites, but I think probably the, the kind of the opening to this is Ocean Conservation Research website, and it's easiest to remember. It's ocr.org. And you get onto that, and it's a, it's a sleigh ride through all kinds of different information and papers. But I think probably the funnest for most people is the sound library. So you can hear, hear all manner of, of fish and uh, seals, crazy-sounding seals and, and dolphins and, and porpoises and whales. And, um, and also you can hear the mechanical sounds of sonar and uh, seismic air gun surveys and shipping noise. So it kind of gives you a palette of what we're working with. Um, and I just recently got some sounds uh, for uh, a presentation I did at the California Academy of a healthy reef. And 
a reef mm. doesn't have a lot of critters on it. You have, of course, a snapping shrimp. Most people will hear that when they're diving. You hear this kind of crackling right. or popping in the background. Those are actually animals. That's not, yeah. yeah. It's all, those are called snapping shrimp. And, and, uh, but there's also, you know, other arthropods like lobsters and crabs and, and fish mm. that, you know, whistling, whistling barnacles and chortling fish and, and cracking and chirping, uh, uh mantis shrimp. And, and this is a really great environment. It's a recorded environment. So just to, to kind of highlight, uh, and we don't have that sound on, on the website yet. I'm going to start kind of working with that. We're working with a, a volunteer center down in uh, Palo Alto to put together a sound exhibit for those guys. So we're going to be using some of these sounds for that. And once we do that, we'll have it kind of plugged into the to the website. People can hear that as well. But there's a lot of sounds to hear, and it's, um, it's it's kind of a lot of fun. That's wonderful. And I also want to plug your book, which I um, am enjoying very much. Here Where We Are, Sound Ecology and Sense of Place. You really talk about, you really describe sound and uh, in a way that I just haven't thought of it before and in terms of helping helping us uh, understand how we locate ourselves in uh, in place in relation to others, in relation to objects. Uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Thank you. It's a lot of fun to write that one. And uh, it's yeah, it's a, it's an arc that, that goes from humans' relationship to sound and uh, cultural history around sound, and and uh, it's got a little section on the physics of sound and, and sound perception, and then so it goes a lot into this: how do animals hear? What they use sounds for? What are their adaptations? Why do ears look like they look? Uh, so the kind of phenomenology of of, uh, of sound and adaptation, and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun kind of doing the exploration for that over the course of my life and finally be able to put in a, in between two covers. Well, it's fascinating and it's very well written, so I highly recommend it. And guess Thank what? You. Our time is over for now. I want okay. to thank you so much for uh, talking to me and talking to our listeners and sharing what you know and what you love about uh, the sea and uh, those those magnificent creatures that live in it. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for this opportunity. And as always, it's a delight hearing your voice and having conversation with you. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to passingfornormal.com. That's passing, numeral four, normal.com. Donnie and Ursula Save the World is available in paperback, Kindle, and soon to be an audiobook at DonnieAndUrsula.com. So go out and do something brave today. M. Earth and I thank you.